0: Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, response, cardiac arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today we're going to switch gears a little bit from our normal core content clinical discussion and talk about a little bit deeper into our decision making as emergency care providers this is a topic that is really near and dear to my heart it was something that was introduced to me goodness 20 years ago now um, by one of my mentors and one of my uh, real father figures in emergency medicine and that's the topic of bias and specifically anchoring bias and how that affects us in our clinical decision making and and how We have to sort of check that at the door before we even get to the subject of acute coronary syndrome versus pulmonary embolus versus thoracic dissection versus pneumothorax and some of the, you know, going back to the serial killer topics, before you make your differential diagnosis, you have to think about your biases and how they affect you and anchoring bias is one of those that's uh, very specific and very impactful to us as emergency providers, both in the emergency department and in the pre-hospital setting. And we have a special guest, a new uh, member of our Montgomery County healthcare team here, uh, starting in August, we have Katherine Liu. Katherine was a EMS fellow, finishing up her fellowship down at UT Houston, is gonna be working in the CHI system here in Montgomery County. So we're happy to have her on the podcast, happy to have her in Montgomery County taking care of our patients. So for the MCHD listeners out there, you're going to see Katherine in the emergency department, so please be kind. Uh, She was kind enough to help me put together this episode and she has a really uh, excellent example of what anchoring bias is and how it's affected her and her practice. So open up with your story, Catherine.
1: All right, thanks for having me, Casey. So just to kind of set the scene for you guys, I was an emergency medicine resident training in 2020, so kind of the height of the pandemic. It was a Saturday night, happened to be Halloween, and Janet, you know, just having to cherry on top, there was also the end of daylight savings. So an extra hour of craziness in the ER, of course. And so at that point, I had already seen multiple intoxicated patients that night, and they were all totally fine, all sleeping it off. And EMS brings me this new patient. He's a 26-year-old guy dressed up as a pirate, I remember he was in the full getup, he had the hat and the eye patch and everything and they reported to me that he was coming in for intoxication and maybe a fall while at a party no one's really sure what happened since they were having such a good time but they noticed he was kind of passed out on the floor and that's kind of all that i got in terms of the story so on my exam he's hemodynamically stable awake but still obviously very intoxicated and a little agitated too he was able to follow some commands and moved all of his extremities the nurse did a finger stick which was normal And of course, head imaging crossed my mind for a second since the story was a little bit unclear, but given that he was a young patient and appeared stable, on paper at least, my initial plan was going to let him sleep it off like the rest of the patients I'd seen that night and reassess. So fast forward four hours later, the nurse pokes her head and says, hey, your patient who's the pirate is getting a little bit more confused. So I go back, I reassess him. He's trying to climb out of bed, doesn't know where he is, acting all crazy. Of course, at that time, we did pull the trigger on head imaging And lo and behold, he had a small subdural hemorrhage. So lucky for him, it was small and non-surgical and he ended up doing fine, but I'll never forget the drunk pirate since I anchored too soon on intoxication and nearly missed the head bleed. So today we're really going to talk about some key principles on medical decision-making and how we do that and how you can also avoid having uh, your own drunk pirate.
0: I don't know. I think I've probably been the drunk pirate before. (laughs) I don't know if I had a subarachnoid or a subdural it's classic er story halloween daylight savings middle of the pandemic everything is sort of set up for you to anchor uh, easily on yeah it's intoxicated patient out partying halloween did a basic exam moving all extremities sugar was good it's not like you shuffled him off into the corner and did nothing but he was a setup he was a setup for not widening your differential, closing it in too quickly, we've all been guilty of that as emergency providers. So go through your top three sort of key points. We'll circle back on all three of those. Um, and then we'll kind of roll into some basics. So how do you approach anchoring specifically? How do you approach it with the goal of avoiding it?
1: sure yeah so point number one uh, is to be a medical detective always ask more questions when it doesn't make sense um, especially for us since we're usually the first ones on the scene that's really a good time to be asking all those questions number two would be to reconsider the differential constantly just think does it fit what else could it be and could it be multiple things at once and then last but not least vital signs are vital for a reason i know this is talked a whole bunch but Anytime you have a change, make sure to revisit not just the patient, but also at that time, the differential about what else it could be.
0: You know, the MCHD medics are listening out there, and they've never heard anybody say that vital signs are vital before. I always like (laughs) to say they're not the kind of important signs, or we ignore them sometimes signs. They are called vital signs for a reason. So anchoring in general and anchoring bias, Catherine's story illustrates it perfectly. That's when we take a patient, they have a presenting complaint, we think we know exactly what it is. We consider one thing and one thing only and make our decision. So we anchor quickly on a single diagnosis or a single cause for the patient's complaint. So uh, that's dangerous in our world because especially, even more so for the medics than the emergency physicians, we'll change hats here a little bit, I at least have the 20 minutes or the 30 minutes that the medics have cared for the patient when they drop them off in the emergency department to base my decision from when you arrive on scene in an ambulance you have your time zero i mean the call taker and response time you have really no history with which to base your decision making on so it's a prime setup to anchor and to anchor quickly so how did how did this thought process how did anchoring even come into play in emergency medicine decision making because the concept of anchoring bias and uh, some of the early writing about this really wasn't healthcare based at all. It was really based in decision making um, from a consumer standpoint, from an economic standpoint. So talk a little bit about the background first and then we'll move into the big point of the discussion today is how do we prevent this? How do we put stops into our mind reminders into our practice so that we are always considering other differentials. But start with some of the basics.
1: Yeah, I think you make some great points, Casey. Especially in pre-hospital medicine, we always worry about balancing speed with safety. And sometimes that can lead to shortcuts, uh, you know, for better or for worse. And so today, you know, we're really considering how do we decide a patient's management based on their presentation to begin with. And this kind of goes back to Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize winner in economics. He describes decision making in two different systems, which applies to all fields, not just medicine. So system one is described as fast, intuitive, unconscious pattern recognition versus system two, which is more slow, deliberate, and analytical. And the example they like to give is when you're first learning how to drive a car, you're very careful and methodical about learning all the controls, so that's more of your system two or slower thinking. But once you get a little bit more comfortable with the roads, it starts becoming more automatic to you and you just don't have to consider those things anymore. So that's switching over to system one thinking. And so usually clinical decision making is a combination of both of these systems, but where we get anchoring bias is when we rely too much on system one or that autopilot thinking and we fixate on the initial diagnosis despite maybe not all the pieces fitting together.
0: So our pattern recognition, while it is absolutely vital to what we do as emergency care providers, it can bite us if we don't have the ability to switch from system one to switch system two when we need to. How do we avoid taking those shortcuts even when they're subconscious? Because really system one is the way that we have a gestalt. It's the way that we have our gut sense. It's the, I've seen 1,000, 1,693 belly pains. And I can just see from vital signs and the exam when it's a surgical abdomen and when it's not, when it's, you know, a septic patient and when it's not, but people are complicated and medicine is complicated. And so our mind will take the shortcut if we let it, how do we train ourselves to switch to system two and to do it when it's appropriate? Because like you said, it's a balance between safety and reconsideration and deep analytical thinking versus our pattern recognition. And we talk so much about pattern recognition, EKGs, exam, vital signs, uh, pediatric assessment triangle, all of those things boil down to pattern recognition. And if we switch into system two all the time, we bog ourselves down with inefficiency. So how do we let ourselves move in cruise control or system one the appropriate amount of time and then recognize the need to step away from our shortcuts and really think deeper? That's, that's really the gist. How do we do that in an, in an efficient way?
1: Yeah, so that's a difficult question, right? I mean, our job in its essence, we're faced with a thousand decisions every day. And I think a lot of the reasons why we rely on shortcuts is you know, to minimize that thinking time, you know, when our brains are faced with similar experiences, our minds start forming pattern recognition, like you mentioned. So if if I gave you an example of a 40 year old male with crushing chest pain radiating down his left arm, your mind probably already anchored on MI even before knowing his comorbidities or doing an EKG. And that's just the patient script that we've kind of, you know, developed over time for learning high risk chest pain. And so that good feeling, good stall is system one, like you mentioned, and while generally correct, We must be careful about anchoring too soon uh, on a diagnosis with limited information.
0: Really interesting in in your notes from this, and this was, uh, I've seen variable numbers here. You know, we spend 95% of our time in system one. So we're talking about managing and being efficient with 5% of the time. So very rarely, you know, one in 20 seconds are we going to switch into system two so we have to know when that's appropriate and make it in small enough bites so it doesn't grind us through a halt. Talk a little bit about the importance of anchoring in EMS related to how patients are presented to the emergency department. So we're telling our medics, hey, if the script doesn't fit, reconsider we've talked about the serial killers on the podcast before for chest pain for example we have five we've, we've ripped off dr slovis and made lists of five and said you know chest pain is it's acsmi it's pneumothorax it's dissection it's pe it's pericardial tamponade and those lists in and of themselves are trying to break us from a single differential consideration that's a, a way that's a method to force us into system two and to be deliberate so that you're considering the serial killers instead of, like you said, chest pain down the left arm, left side of the chest. It's We're going to go one track mind straight to ACS. Well, yeah, you're going to be right most of the time. There's one dissection for every 600 STEMIs, but we still have to consider dissection for our differential. Why is that important, though? I think there's a really important piece here for... The medics may be saying, yeah, but you're going to get them and you need to switch into system two, not me. That, that's your job as an emergency physician. How would you counter that statement?
1: Right. So speaking as an emergency physician, I mean, the EMS report that we receive makes a huge impact on how we start our work up. You know, since the EMS provider really is the first to make patient contact, you know, your first impression and hospital report can really influence how we think which is another one of many biases called diagnostic momentum. So just to kind of illustrate this, we can give another example. So let's say there's a skilled nursing facility who calls for a patient to be sent to the ER to rule out pneumonia. There's no fever, but the patient is tachycardic and short of breath. Now, if EMS goes along with it and we transport the patient, we give the exact same report to the ER about concern for pneumonia. In doing so, we've anchored on pneumonia and continued the diagnostic momentum from the skilled nursing facility, who, remember, they didn't even have any workup. That was just a suspicion that they had. Now, a potential outcome could be that the ER will discharge the patient after a negative chest X-ray and everyone forgot to rule out the saddle PE. And so just remember that handing off patients, whether it's from EMS to doctor or doctor to doctor in the hospital, it's always a high-risk time. To keep your hospital reports as objective as possible and avoid including suspected diagnosis, whether that's from family, from you, or whoever, just you know present the facts only.
0: That's an excellent example from shortness of breath, serial killers that we talked about. Yes, pneumonia is on there, but so is PE, so is obstructive lung disease, so is acute pulmonary edema. It may not even be lungs at all. It may be a a compensatory situation where you have a non-pulmonary acidosis. So rather than considering the only thing that the skilled nursing facility tells you it may be pneumonia but we still have to trust and verify so do you have fever do you have productive cough let's listen to the lungs are there rales, ronchi wheezes now all those things are pieces of the puzzle no one of those single pieces are the entire puzzle and then let's look at the vital signs so that patient's got no fever the heart rate's 115 did we look at the calves did we consider the fact that the patients in a skilled nursing facility why are they there did they have their hip replaced a week ago are, are they on anticoagulation do they have a hat past history of pe or dvt so rather than just concentrating on one thing closing down your thought process and moving on to the next, next patient if your differential diagnosis has one disease process on it, you have to be 100% right 100% of the time or you're going to miss stuff. So that's an easy thing to say. Sometimes it's a much harder thing to do because our lives, especially in the pre-hospital portion of emergency care, are inundated with other distractions. There's so much noise and so much distraction, so much light and sound and curve balls that are constantly being thrown at us, we're in a setup to make errors. So talk about some of the the decision-making difficulties, some of the decision-making distractions that we have in emergency care, because these are huge.
1: Yeah, so EMS is a tough job, right? I mean, just the environment that we work on every day is different than being in the hospital. You have all your different ambient conditions, whether your resources are limited for that day, the patients being difficult, The weather that we're having with right now, with it being insanely hot, all of those things can play into how you make decisions. And not just that, there's also individual factors as well. Have you been getting enough sleep? How many times are you getting interrupted while you're trying to talk to the patient? And on top of that, you know, how many patients have you already seen that day? Is this patient number 20 and you're tired or you had a difficult case right before this? So there's a lot of cognitive and emotional load, you know, that comes along with it as well that can impact the way you think. And so just recognize that nearly all of these things are outside of your control, so just recognize when they arise and give yourself a little bit of slack. Remember that you're never by yourself. You know, Rely on your partner, other people on the scene to help you because two brains are always better than one, like I say. And last but not least, is for you know, remember that your medical directors are always here to support you as well if you ever need to talk to anyone.
0: As long as it's daytime hours on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, I'm happy to discuss the case with you. No
1: weekends or holidays. No
0: weekends. You know, we don't we don't practice emergency medicine on weekends or holidays, never nights. I'm never available at night. So no, I mean, that, that's totally true. These situations and talking to difficult cases, really under the umbrella of oversight is why, why we're here as EMS medical directors. So I, I call my partners. All the time, Dr. Dixon and I sit on Monday morning when we've worked our Thursday through Sunday cases, and the first thing we do at, you know, 8.55 a.m. is, did you have anything good? What'd you take care of? And most of the time, for me, it ends up being, man, I screwed this one up, or what would you have done here? Would you have done this? Because I was on the fence. So those kind of conversations, having those outlets, recognizing the distractions that we can't control because there's so many things in EMS, in the emergency department that are totally out of our control. And that's a hard one to keep in perspective. We can only control how we approach the patient. We can't control how the family approaches us. We can't control the noise and the distraction a lot of times. So we have folks we talk to, our partners, we have run reviews, we have case conference, we have, you know, neuro trauma with with our hospital partners, we have all these ways that we try to sit down and be introspective and insightful. And really the goal is at least partially to prevent anchoring bias. So what are some other things personally, you know, in your practice, because really I think preventing anchoring bias from an emergency physician standpoint to the medic on the street, a lot of the concepts are similar. I always tell the medic listeners, I always tell our MCHD folks when I'm talking, you know, Dr. Dixon, was a law enforcement officer, was a paramedic, has that experience uh, behind him. I I don't. I was a uh, gas station employee that got a science degree and went to med school, so I've never done the hard job in the truck, but when it comes to preventing anchoring bias, I feel like that a lot of the tact that I take in the emergency department is pretty similar to the mental fail-safes, the mental sort of reminders that the medics can use too. So talk about some of the things that you do in your practice, some of the things that are suggested for folks trying to prevent anchoring bias and trying to keep an open mind.
1: Yeah. So I think pre-hospital medicine, we have that extra layer of there's limited opportunities for us to get feedback after we've dropped off that patient. So, you know, we're a little bit unsure about whether our initial diagnosis was correct, if we manage them properly. So that can make it difficult to calibrate your reasoning. Right. But the good thing is biases, since they're generally unconscious, being aware of how you think is kind of half the battle. And so if you're aware of how you're thinking, you can make that conscious change to switch from fast pattern thinking to that slower analytical thinking. And one of the first things that you can do to switch is you know, if it doesn't make sense, ask more questions. So always seek more information and revisit the diagnosis with new data. Think about all parts of the history to help you. Are you missing something from the medications that's causing them to be altered or something from surgical history or social history um, that's, you know, you're missing a key part of that's not making sense to you. Like I said before, as prehospital providers, we have the advantage of seeing the initial scene. So I think it's crucial to talk to any bystanders or checking out the environment, seeing missing pill bottles to kind of explain what's going on.
0: I would add into that one. If the treatment pathway that you initiate doesn't lead to the response that you're expecting, that sort of goes into the same bucket of if it doesn't make sense, if the treatment doesn't get the response that you expect, ask more questions. Consider that you're traveling the wrong path. So if you're looking at a patient, and you think, "Oh, it's, a, it's obstructive lung disease, I'm going to start some nebs and some steroids, and you turn around and the patient's entitle has gone from 45 to 65. that may not add up. What else could be going on? Is there a toxin involved? Is there a closed head injury involved that's causing altered mentation? Most of the time, if you have an obstructive lung disease patient and you start NEBS and steroids and positive pressure ventilation, usually you see some improvement. Or is the patient just decompensating significantly and do you need to uh, press your care even more aggressively? So if the situation doesn't make sense, ask more questions. Make sure that you're asking more than one question to start. Serial killers, for example, when you roll up on a chest pain, you got to consider more than MI, or if it's not an MI, you're inherently wrong. And then watch your treatment pattern and make sure that you're getting the response that you expect. And if you don't, back up, widen your differential, ask some more history questions, ask some more surgical questions, ask some more medication questions, Uh, dig a little deeper because you may be missing something. We wouldn't have a podcast if we didn't say vital signs are vital. So when we talk about vital signs, really the important thing for me and and I loved that it, it ended up in here is that vital signs are a movie. They're not a still picture. So describe describe that. What what do I mean by that? It's it's really not just one point in time. It's a trend, correct?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we all know physical exam can be a little bit difficult, but the one thing that you can always kind of objectively see is your vitals. And so just be mindful of when they do change because it's a dynamic, right? So you know, if someone's becoming increasingly tachycardic, don't just write it off. as because they're anxious or excited to see you. You know, consider what other immediate life threats you need to worry about. Are they tachycardic and hypoxic because they got hit in the chest and now you need a needle decompress or they've been having fever and coughing and now they're septic and you need to start some antibiotics. And so I think it's a, a good plug for getting a full set of vitals. I think a lot of times I've seen, you know, we forget to get temperature or glucose because, there's just so much going on, and our transport times can be short sometimes, but just to make sure you get a complete set before revisiting your diagnosis.
0: One of the classic examples that I've dealt with in my own practice that I've caught myself on double-digit times over my career is the tachycardic in-stage renal disease patient with a catheter, whether it's you know a tunneled IJ or a groin catheter, plastic in place, and they're altered and there's some unexplained something going on, and you see they're tachycardic and you can't really figure it out, And sometimes at minute five, sometimes at 25, sometimes too long down the line, I hear that bell go off. And I'm like, did anybody do a a core temp? And it's 103. And you'll look and there'll be a, you know, there'll be a temperature on the chart of 97.1 and it'll be, you know, a a temporal, one of those, those crummy ones, or it'll be an oral temp where the patient's mouth's been open for three hours because they're altered. And you drill down to it and get a rectal temp and you find out that they're grossly febrile and like, oh, Okay. They're bacteremic, or I need to consider meningitis. So, uh, yeah, temperature's a big one. Entitle for sure. Uh, make sure we're using our entitle. Uh, yeah, it's great for shark fin and obstructive lung disease. If the patient's tachypnic and they're short of breath and their sugars 800 and their entitle is 15, you've got DKA. You don't need a metabolic panel or a VBG or an ABG. If they're in cardiac arrest and you have an entitle of 20 and all of a sudden it hops to 40 that's big telltale that you've got ROSC, whether or not you feel that pulse or not. So make sure that we're not forgetting temperature, we're not forgetting in The other Rodney Danger field of the vital signs is the respiratory rate, especially in the age of COVID. We've seen so many patients in so many hills and valleys with, or peaks and valleys, excuse me, with, with COVID just seen so many patients that show up and they're sitting in the chair and they're comfortable and they get up to walk and their respiratory rate goes to 45 and their sats drop to 71 and they're you know in imminent need of oxygen therapy steroids antivirals the, the whole package when they're sitting in the chair talking to you they don't look that bad so don't underestimate respiratory rate use your end title. include uh, your temperature because sometimes that can be a real key for putting it in the path towards infectious disease process What about staying skeptical? At some point we become experts. We've got some expert medics, some expert practitioners here in Montgomery County. We're lucky to have them, but you still have to stay skeptical, correct?
1: Yes, definitely. So if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, I hate to break it to you, it may not be a duck uh, because patients do not read the textbook. And so a lot of times you'll get atypical presentations of common things and sometimes vice versa. Um, and so, you know, three simple questions that I like to ask to minimize misdiagnosis is, what else could it be? Is there something that doesn't fit? And is there one more than one diagnosis?
0: And when you say that, you're asking yourself that on every patient. And sometimes that takes a split second. What else could it be? Nothing. Is there something that does not fit? No. Is there more than one diagnosis? No, because sometimes, When the patient falls off their bike and they call because their arm's bent, they didn't lose consciousness. It's an arm fracture. There's nothing that doesn't fit here. It's all good. And there's not more than one diagnosis, but we get a lot of, uh, you know, a big soup of trauma, toxin, altermentation, withdrawal, nursing home patients with no history, a med list that may not be up to date. So sometimes this three questions to minimize misdiagnosis is super quick. Other times it's going to be vital and you're going to ask yourself those three questions multiple times in the same transport. And you talked about mnemonics here in your notes. Um, The serial killers are one that we talked about here that are huge. You know, if you're taking care of abdominal pain, you have to think about the things that kill people with abdominal pain, torsion and and AAA and all of those things we talked about on our, our serial killers discussion, chest pain, shortness of breath, altermentation mnemonics are another one that can be helpful. You can't learn them all with mnemonics. And I think you have to keep the ones that work for you. Uh, sometimes I learn mnemonics and remember that there's a mnemonic and can't remember what it stands for. So sometimes that can get, <laughs> get, a, get a little bit confusing, but have ways that you stop yourself and reconsider because whether you do five serial killers, whether you do A I U tips, whether you take vindicate, which is one here, keeping your differential open: vascular, infectious, neoplastic, you know, toxins, congenital, autoimmune, trauma, endocrine. It just reminds you that endocrine's there. Endocrine's one for me that I'll always remember. Several cases that I've had where I've had an altered patient that didn't make sense, and somebody said, did "You get a, did you get a TSH?" Like ah, I've had probably three hypothyroid, you know, mixed edema coma type patients that it hit me three hours in because somebody walked by and said, hey, endocrine. Endocrine's the one that always falls off the list for me. So I always put endocrine first because I know that I miss it. So we all develop our own uh, cognitive forcing strategies is what these are. That's what uh, I'd have to to acknowledge. Kerry Chisholm, uh, who was my mentor in considering biases and his entire practice uh, much of his in, his teaching to us as emergency medicine residents involved that idea of a string tied around your pinky finger how do you force yourself to cognitively stop and what he was talking about was switching to system two how do we switch to sw- system two and do it appropriately do you tie a string around your finger sometimes you do that so you don't forget your car keys do you put your car keys in the in the freezer do you uh, do you have a mnemonic do you learn serial killers there's probably no single right way One of the really important things that you said earlier was, you know, you have to just consider it. It's kind of like GI Joe, knowing's half the battle and thinking about it's half the battle. We're gonna wrap up with one of the absolute key teaching points for me that I've learned through mistakes in my practice, that I've seen other practitioners make mistakes here, and this is one, if you take one lesson out of this discussion, I feel like it's inherent in all that we do. I see it done wrong, and it's not, it's not specific to medic. This is EMT, AMT, paramedic, emergency nurse, emergency physician, neurosurgeon, trauma surgeon. I've seen this uh, ball dropped by everyone involved in emergency care, and that is the difficult patient. And what do we mean by the difficult patient, and why are they really sort of time bombs when it comes to anchoring bias. How, how do how does difficult patient and anchoring bias go together and how do we prevent stepping in the pothole with them?
1: Yeah, so our favorite, right, the difficult patient. So we're talking about your, you know, multiple callers, your homeless population, your drug addicts, all of those kind of fall into the, you know, that category. And the danger is, you know, we form these early impressions or judgments and it's easy to dismiss these people or not probe further because we think it's either too much work or we assume we know what's going on. And so like the prior that I had, these people are at high risk for occult trauma or infection. So we really need to be careful about uh, anchoring too soon uh, on a minor complaint and writing them off early. And so you know our preconceived stereotypes could be a whole separate podcast in and of itself. But like you said, we've been guilty of it in the ER as well. Um, I can't tell you how many times, you know, Joe Schmo, who's homeless, is back for the 10th time for his turkey sandwich, and we get all upset and discharge him early. And we didn't ask that he's having chest pain that day. Maybe that's the day he has an MI, but we didn't know because we didn't ask, right? So, you know, one of my mentors who taught me in residency said that every patient really deserves five seconds of your serious consideration to really rule out any major life threats. And if you do that every time, you'll be doing right by your patient.
0: And that's considering the killers, that's looking at the vital signs, that's doing a reasonable exam. Whether that's a substance use patient, whether that's, uh, you know, a patient suffering from homelessness, whether that's a frequent a frequent caller a frequent utilizer. Yeah, the f- heart rate 60, blood pressure's 120, look around, don't see any rashes, you've got a grossly normal neurologic exam. It may just be that they wanted somebody to talk to, that they wanted a turkey sandwich. It may be the usual, but folks with substance use disorders history can get meningitis. It may not just be alcohol use disorder and intoxication, it may be the intoxicated pirate that hit his head that you didn't get the story on, or they may have become significantly more thrombocytopenic from their chronic alcohol use disorder and hit their head on the bathroom cabinet in a seemingly minor injury that's caused a subdural over three to four days. So remember that we always have to stop and force ourselves, especially in those patients that we know very well and there's a lot of those there's a lot of them out there and we can look at them as you know a drain on the day as oh my gosh but i just choose to say all right i i likely know what's going on here but let's be thorough let's look at the vitals let's spend that five seconds of thoracic dissection mi pe pneumothorax cardiac tamponade nope 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 you've at least considered so knowing they're considering stopping yourself and switching to system two for at least a brief period in every single patient is really half the battle no matter what you do so that's a good spot for us to wrap up take us through your main points Catherine. thanks again for joining us and uh, really good talk i like this
1: yeah of course so just to wrap up system one remember makes medical decisions with limited evidence which can lead you to anchoring bias System two is more deliberate and analytical, but it can be time consuming and delays resuscitation. So the ideal system is to really use pattern recognition to form an initial plan and then start your resuscitation. Hopefully if you have some time later, you can slow down a little bit and make sure that everything fits with what you're thinking. Of course, continue to ask questions if they don't make sense to you and re-examine your differential constantly, especially when there's a change in vital signs. Give every patient five seconds of your serious consideration. And just remember that experience may accumulate, but doesn't guarantee expertise. Medicine is a humbling business, so just keep an open mind, keep asking questions, and keep learning. And thanks for having me, really appreciate it.
0: Awesome, as always, if you have ideas for future podcasts, comments, questions, concerns, shoot us an email at podcast at mchd-tx.org. Please go out and leave us a like or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. We only take five stars though, that's that's all we take around here. I've said it before, we get our feelings hurt with four stars. So send us some feedback, let us get to five stars if that's not the review you're gonna give us. Thanks for listening. Thanks Catherine from coming on to all the MCHD medics out there. Be kind to her when you see her in the coming months in our local emergency departments. We hope to have her on again. It's great to have EMS centric folks out there practicing in our community. It really helps to bring the true system of care from patient contact when they call 911, EMS arrival, transport, hospital workup to discharge. It really helps to solidify that communication piece and have a good two-way communication from the hospital to the EMS setting. We appreciate having EMS-centric folks out there. We appreciate her coming on and putting together this episode for us. So thanks everybody for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Have a great rest of your day.